Ecclesiastes 4, beginning in verse 4 through verse 12. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Let's pray. Holy Father, be with me now as I preach your word. Be with this congregation that they would hear it and receive it, Lord that uh, you would speak to our hearts through this passage of loneliness and friendship, and that our true desire and and the closest friendship that we could have, Lord, is with your Son. May the preaching of your word be uh, magnified, may your Son be glorified, and may your people be edified today. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So one of my favorite shows of all time is the long-running British sci-fi series, Doctor Who. Does anybody know about Doctor Who? Just Mark. Okay. Doctor, I I anticipated that. I thought maybe uh, Laura Beth might have known a little bit about Doctor Who, but I actually thought Paul would help me out. No? Okay. So Doctor Who is one of the longest-running TV shows in history, Uh, and it's the story, the the adventures of a human-like alien who travels through space and time in an old uh, uh, British police box. And it's blue, and it, and it just looks like an unassuming box. But when you go inside, it's this massive spaceship, and it's part of the fun, the story. And the Doctor is always getting himself into adventures. He's always saving the world and influential people in human history. I mean, he goes to Pompeii. He goes to Elizabethan uh, England. More recently, he's come to the South. They did a whole episode on Rosa Parks, and they've done Nixon. and They've covered the history of the known world. And, of course, other worlds. He saves entire species and planets from evil that would seek to destroy it. Uh, the Doctor is kind. He's intelligent. He's loyal, but he's also really lonely. At a certain point in his own history, he loses his entire species from the universe. They're exterminated. And what scares the doctor most now is being alone. So fortunately for him and for TV drama and comedy, he is continually picking up companions. Most of the time they're from London, because it's based in the UK, But he picks up these companions, and some of them he has, throughout his history, even fallen in love with. And after one particular heartbreaking uh, companion, they fall in love, he has to leave her, it's this whole sad thing, I cried, he has to journey alone again. And whenever he's alone, he's his most dangerous, and so as he's alone, he, he realizes he needs to get a companion. So he picks up a particularly sassy 
British woman named Donna. And they get brought together through a weird circumstance. They have a lot of fun together, so he invites her. Do you want to go see all of space and time? I mean, that's a good offer. But he's a little rusty with being, you know, nice and trying to make friends. And so uh, after they save the day together, he says, you know, he wants to be sure he doesn't want another relationship. He doesn't want romance, but he does want companionship. So the doctor says to Donna, I just want a mate. And Donna responds, you want two mate? And the doctor's flustered. He's like, no, 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 no. I just want a mate. And before she, he can even finish that, Donna interrupts him again and says, well, you're not mating with me, sunshine. And it's funny. And the doctor redeems the situation by stressing that. He says, I want a mate. I want a mate. Now, part of this is lost in us because we don't go running around calling people mate. But in the UK, that's just how they call each other friends. The man who could travel through space and time, be friends with some of the greatest people in history, could not get himself uh, to conquer the need for companionship. Now, it's a sci-fi story. It's fiction. I obviously know we can't travel through space and time. I mean, we can travel through space, but not this way. But just because it's fiction, it doesn't mean that it doesn't hit something true about us. In the beginning, when God created all things, he said everything was good. He said trees are good, sun is good, water is good, animals are good. Humanity, you're really good, good, good. But there was one thing that was not good. It was not good for man to be alone. So God makes for Adam, Eve. He makes a companion. So the preacher knows the truth of this statement, that it is not good for man to be alone. And if you recall, so far the preacher has explored humanity's uh, maximum amount of pleasure and prosperity. The preacher has given himself to hedonistic desires. He's made himself a titan of industry. He has lived, seen, and done it all. And he constantly concludes all this was vanity and a striving after wind. That's preacher talk for saying it led to nothing. It led to emptiness. And the preacher has intentionally so far shown us a world devoid of God and what it is, what he's left with is just emptiness. So now he's going to present the tragic reality, but he's also starting to give us remedies. We kind of saw that a couple weeks ago. He's not going to be constantly doom and gloom. He's going to start talking about better things, better options to the emptiness of life. And so now for the next several chapters, this is going to start reading a lot more like the book of Proverbs. They're going to be more compact statements about truths that we can understand, whether they're dark truths or hopeful truths. Um, So it'll make preaching this get a little bit more interesting. But the preacher in this passage presents two ways of living, one marked by absolute loneliness and the other marked by companionship. So let's look at what the lonely life is that he presents. So in verse four, the preacher says, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. We should all be familiar with this word toil right now. It's the preacher's catch-all encompassing word for everything labor-related, whether it's building or finance um, or agriculture. It, It means all the toil, everything that we put our minds, our bodies to, that's what he means when he uses the word toil. Now, of course, not everyone who toils and works hard is doing so to keep up with the Joneses, right? We're not always envious or trying to keep up with other people, but if we're honest, we've seen things that other people have and we realize if I work just a little bit harder, I could get that too. 
And we also, as Americans, just, I think, thrive off of a bit of envy, right? We like competition. Where would America be without Ford versus GM? Or where would the energy industry be without Edison versus Tesla? We love a good rivalry. Think of like every March Madness, whenever sports, uh, if they have March Madness this year, uh, everyone is always rooting for the underdog, the Cinderella story that's going to you know, rise up and beat all these other big teams. Or we're excited to look forward to Alabama versus Auburn or Florida versus Georgia, all the other rivalries, Yankees versus Red Sox. We thrive off of watching these rivalries, but are they good for us? The preacher would say here that when it comes to consuming, it, it's dangerous for us, right? You know, your neighbor gets something big and nice, whether it's a TV or an SUV, and all of a sudden you feel maybe a little bit of pressure to get something like that. Uh, the biggest craze now for home exercising is the Peloton, and there's been a couple of different funny videos all talking about, you know, people trying to find a really cheap Peloton because their neighbor across the yard got one, and they want to get a Peloton too so they can keep up and, A, have the Peloton, which is really just an exalted stationary bike, and then they can, you know, be in as good a shape and show off that they care about their health too. Here's the thing, though. A rivalry is only a rivalry if both parties are aware of it. A rivalry of only one person is pretty tragic. There's a, a, a way of illustrating this was from, did anybody also watch Mad Men? Okay, I was hoping not. I never watched it too. We watched like one episode, it wasn't for us, but Mad Men tells the story of a marketing firm in the 60s and it was won all sorts of Emmys and awards. But one of the main characters is this guy named Don Draper who is you know, good looking, confident. He always has the answers, always has the imaginative uh, marketing ploy. He's always the closer. I mean, he's the alpha guy. He's, you know, the hero. And he's got this other guy working for him named Ginsburg, and he's physically smaller and leaner than Don. He's also got good ideas, but he can't, he can't spin them like Don. And Ginsburg works for Don, and so he's constantly trying to get him Don to share his ideas in meetings. And there's this one memorable line. It's like been labeled one of the 50 best lines in the show or 30 best or whatever. But after a particular pitch, Don was supposed to give one of Ginsburg ideas a try. And at the last minute in this meeting with the clients, he decides not to. Don pitches his own idea. The clients love it. They go with Don's idea. And Ginsburg is just fired up. Yet again, I'm overlooked. Yet again, he doesn't appreciate me. And as they're leaving the office for the day, Ginsburg runs after Don to get into the elevator with him so that he can confront him. And Ginsburg gets in the elevator, the door's shut, and he's just like, you didn't share my idea. And that was a good idea. They, you know, they didn't even get the opportunity to hear it. He's like, what does it matter? We just closed the deal. They're our, you know, they're our client now. And Ginsburg starts to just let off all the resentment he has for him. He's trying to belittle Don, he's trying to get a rise out of him, and nothing is happening. And so finally the elevator's open and Don goes to get out and Ginsburg says, you know, his best attempt at some type of insult is, I just feel sorry for you. And Don Draper, without batting an eye or, you know, not missing a beat, just says, I never think about you at all. And walked out the door. Don didn't have to think about Ginsburg. There was no rivalry between him and Ginsburg. But for Ginsburg, that was all he thought about. I have to be better than this man. I can be better than this man. And it consumes him. It is 
but that's exactly what envy does. It makes us a rivalry of one. It is obsessing over what other people possess and being ungrateful for what you have. And the tragedy here is that it's more than just a sense of inadequacy that urges this obsession with work and accumulation. The tragedy is what it does to the relationship between you and your neighbor. How can you have a healthy relationship with someone that God's placed you right next to and when you're constantly comparing yourself to them, when you're constantly viewing every success they have in life, whether it's you know, their children are, get off to better schools or they're more successful at sports or they have the bigger SUVs or cars or whatever it is, they just seem more successful at life. How can you be happy for them if every success for them is an offense to you? Or their happiness just brings you unmitigated misery. What could have been a deeply meaningful friendship for, for this man and his neighbor is marred by this envy. And as Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. There can be no joy, there can be no friendship with those we compare ourselves to. So then maybe we have another thing we could do. Maybe we just end up giving up. So that's what verse 5 says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Pretty graphic, but the this is speaking about laziness. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Paul commands the Thessalonians that if anyone is not willing to work, he should uh, not eat. This is dealing with uh, the Thessalonians were thinking that the uh, resurrection had already happened or was imminent, and so they just stopped working and were just banking on the fact that God was going to return, and they weren't contributing to the church. I mean, the church contributes and takes care of one another, and these people are leaning back from that responsibility. In Proverbs, it's written, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Laziness, idleness leads to apathy. Derek Kidner, a great Old Testament scholar, commenting on this verse wrote, his laziness eats away not only what he has, but who he is. The fool self-cannibalizes, as the preacher graphically puts it for us. So now the one who is toiling all the time, trying to keep up with his neighbor, has something the fool doesn't. Someone. Right? If you're, if you're so self-absorbed, so self-consuming you know, yourself, so lazy, we don't see anybody coming to the fool's aid. Right? At least with, you know, that there's nobody even around for him to have an envious relationship. There's no comparison. There's nobody to come along and say, like Paul does to the Thessalonians, what you're doing isn't right. Like, man, maybe you had a few licks or some things have not gone your way, but you are just giving up and that is not okay. Look at what's happening to your life. You're, you're just whittling away to nothing this. You're not down and out. It's just, you're lazy and it's killing you. But he's exhausted all the relationships and so he's left only with himself. Kind of reminded me of one of the, the ads that they used to show after school when you know, you'd have like your after school programs for TV and when I was growing up in the 80s, 90s, D.A.R.E. was everywhere, D.A.R.E., you know, drug awareness, something education. But there was always these commercials about like, don't do drugs. And one of the ones was uh, two friends that are at, you know, in a living room. And the one friend says, you know, to the camera, we used to do lots of fun things together, her and I. But now all she ever wants to do is, you know, do drugs and then just watch TV. And she's not fun anymore. And she doesn't really care about things the way she used to. And I remember, I think, I mean, I obviously don't remember every single line, but what, what, didn't, what got me wasn't the lines, it was what's happening to the girl as the friend is talking. Because she's sitting on a couch and she gets more lazy and more leaned back and more leaned back until she pretty much becomes part of the couch. 
And then the friend just walks out and leaves because there's nothing even to care for anymore because this person isn't even like a person anymore. They have foolishly given up so much of themselves to apathy. Let's get a little bit lonelier. There's one more person that is also tragically alone. And the, the hardest part about this verse, when I read it, listen for it, is they're not even aware that they're lonely. Verses 7 through 8 say, Again I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. There is a man who has no other, or as the NASB uh, translation puts it, he is without a dependent. He had no one looking to him for provision or security. He has no one to leave his vast wealth uh, to when he dies. Now, when I was single, and I'm sure most of you may have experienced this too, you know, I had my first real job and I had like a lot of money, not because I didn't have like this huge salary, but because I didn't have like a wife or children or other people counting on me that I had to give to. I had to pay my sliver of the rent with a roommate, my sliver of the utilities, and the rest was Philip money. And I got to do with it whatever I wanted. But as I grew up, I had you know, people that came to depend on me. And that was a great thing, but it also meant you know, I needed to work harder or get a job that could provide more. But I had like, people to do that for. I had reasons to do it, like really good reasons to want to do those things and to have those opportunities. But this guy doesn't have any of what I had. He can't stop toiling, and all he has to do is take care of himself. And why? Well, the preacher says his eyes are never satisfied with riches. He is always wanting more and more and more. So this is different from the man in verse 4, right? The man in verse 4 is just envious of everything his neighbors gets. Maybe this guy is the neighbor because he is just getting all the latest toys, all the coolest things, and he's never satisfied. And sadly, this is why I said it was the, the harshest form of the loneliness here is he doesn't realize that he's lonely. He doesn't realize that he's empty. The text says, he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This man's working so hard and he isn't even enjoying what he accumulates because his eyes are always on the next big thing. He's laboring and toiling and his meaning is found in the pursuit of happiness that he will never find, land, or enjoy. So this is the lonely life. It's envy, it's laziness, it's an ambition, all that lead to a lonely life. The first man was lonely because he distorts relationships because of his jealousy. The second is lonely because he's pushed away those who would care for him. The third is lonely and doesn't even realize that everything he has done has not brought him an ounce of pleasure or an ounce of meaning in his life. And when viewed together like this, it is clear that a life lived in isolation is not good for us. It is not good for man to be alone. So what's interesting about all of this is the way the preacher presents these lonely individuals is that we are aware of their loneliness. We get to be the people looking into their lives and we can clearly see, all right, you're lonely, things aren't working out. Uh, 
we're so aware of their loneliness and they aren't, but further, their life situations haven't made them aware of their loneliness either. Nothing's happened to them to show them their need for a companion yet, right? One's just, they all are working so hard to fill all these empty needs and they're not realizing it. So pay attention then to how the preacher describes the better life because he literally calls it, it is better this way. So I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. All right, what did you see? What, what stuck out to you? Well, first, obviously, he says two are better than one because they receive a good reward for their toil. Think back to verses four and eight with the envious man, the man toiling alone. It's better to cooperate with others and be successful with a reward that could be bigger or at least a successful endeavor that's not marred by jealousy. But secondly, the, the better life is described with all sorts of hardships. Right? The three illustrations are rooted in travel risks that would have been really well known to everyone in the ancient Near East. Roads aren't what we have today. So imagine walking near dusk or early in the morning. The light isn't the best. Maybe there's some fog and you fall into a ditch. You break your leg or your ankle or your arm. You can't get out. This was a real possibility for people in the ancient Near East traveling roads. So it's a dangerous situation. But if you have somebody with you, well, then you get to be lifted up, as the text says. Now, a lot of commentators think that what's being discussed is marriage. I mean, they almost all go to the first meaning of this passage is marriage, partly because of that next illustration. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. Well, they instantly think of a husband and wife sharing a bed. But also, when you travel back in the ancient Near East, even if you were of the same gender and you're out in the cold nights of the desert, you're going to get a little cozy with the people just to stay warm. It's not a bad idea. When you are out uh, in wilderness, if you've ever done anything with Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or any type of survival stuff, if you get isolated or alone uh, from you know, a, a group and it's just a few of you at night, you want to stick closer together, especially if the temperatures get colder because body heat's going to keep you all warmer. And if you're by yourself, how are you going to do that? Unless, you know, you got to make sure you have all the blankets. You've got to make sure rip war and fire. But just being with other people traveling this way can keep you warm. And finally, I mean, it's, it's obvious. It, it, it's real easy to pick on one lonely traveler and rob them. But if there are two, if there are three, if there are four, robbers might think twice about charging an entire group of people. So all these illustrations show the blessings of having a companion. They're there for you in times of misfortune. They're there for you in times of adversity. They're there for you during times of hostility. Going alone is not only a sad way to live, it's a dangerous way to live. This is also depicted wonderfully in the uh, Pixar movie Cars, which I admitted to my family is my favorite Pixar movie. Um, if you aren't familiar with it, it's okay. But it's really good. You should watch it. Um, but it's the story of everyone's a car, first of all. There's no like human people. Uh, but it tells the story of Lightning McQueen. He's the rookie race car sensation. And uh, the opening movie takes place fighting for the Piston Cup. You know, it's the premier championship for race car drivers. And if he wins it, not only does he get to be this rock star rookie, 
but he'll also more than likely be the successor to the king. This was another famous race car driver who's retiring and his sponsor is like the greatest thing and everybody wants to get, uh, be his successor. Well, because of pride and arrogance and refusal to work with people, uh, instead of getting to victory, he has to settle for a three-way tie at the end of the race. And so they're gonna have another race to determine who wins the Piston Cup uh, in a couple of weeks. And while traveling to that, the whole movie takes place. He gets separated from his crew. He ends up in some small, small podunk town. And I skipped over this part, but uh, the, when he ties with the race, the king that he raced against said, man, you were unbelievable. Like you're an incredible racer, but you're real dumb because he didn't rely on his team. And so the king says to him, this ain't a one man deal, kid. You need to wise up and get yourself a good crew chief and get a good team. You ain't gonna win unless you go get good folks behind you. If you figure that out, you're gonna be just okay. Well, through all sorts of terrible incidents, Lightning McQueen figures it out. He has to fix a whole town that he destroys and he gains a crew chief. He gains genuine friendships. And so when he goes to the race, he doesn't go alone. He goes with people who encourage him and help him out when he starts to get flat tires and things like that. It was through teamwork that he actually wins. Actually, no, he doesn't win the race because at the very end, the very last lap of the race, the king's in this horrible accident and he's not going to win. And so Lightning McQueen, who's about to win, learns something. He wants to take care of somebody because he cares about him, because others have taken care of him. So he goes and pushes the king through the finish line and Lightning McQueen comes in third. He couldn't do a race alone. We can't do life alone. We need people. It is not good for man to be alone. This is a really great story, really great passage about why we need companionship. But where is Christ? Every sermon should at least mention our Savior. And there's lots of different interpretative methods and insights into how we could do this and see Christ in here. And the only thing I could think of was kind of cheesy, but Christ is the better companion, right? We all have people that we rely on. We all have spouses, friends, relatives. I mean, we, I hope, have experienced the joys of having someone to do life with. But the ultimate person to do life with is Jesus Christ. And that's why there's a, this jump here in verse 12. We've been talking about a couple, just two people. And all of a sudden in verse 12, it says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Why the jump from two to three? It's because God has to be part of all the relationships that we have. And furthermore, the God of the whole universe calls people throughout the Bible his friends. He calls Abraham a friend. He calls Moses a friend. When Christ comes incarnate to do ministry, he has friends. He travels around with 12 other guys. He befriends other families in the towns that he ministers in. So how is Christ our companion? He promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promised to send us his spirit so we would have a comfort. And he promises to be found in the scriptures. So how can we have Christ as this ultimate companion, as this better companion? We can have it by reading the scriptures. It's there that he's opening himself to his character, to his salvific history, to what he expects of us in this relationship. You know, people will say that they're very open. I'm an open book. We literally have an open book to the character and personhood of God. 
if we spend time with it, we will learn what a true and good companion our Savior is to us. And also, we have the church. Christ has promised to dwell with his church. Where two or three are gathered, there I am. We cannot do life alone, certainly not the Christian life. One of the things that has gotten me through 2020 was coming here to be with you all was coming here to be with you every Lord's Day to continue to worship. We are fortunate to be small so that we could keep doing that. So let us trust that when we think of friends and companions, we have one that will never leave us, never forsake us. That like our real friends and relationships and loved ones is there in times of adversity, hostility, that is there for you when you are just beyond lonely. Christ is that good companion. He's the third cord and a rope to keep you your marriage together to keep your relationships with children together to keep friendships together and he's your entire rope when you can't keep yourself together let's pray gracious lord thank you for the comfort that we have in your word of, of friendships and companions the the promises that you will not leave us that you are the the god who came to be with us to dwell amongst us in our flesh that you've experienced friendship in your own ministry uh, here with the disciples, with Lazarus, with Mary, with Martha. We look forward, Lord, to the day when we get to be with you face to face and experience friendship with you in that way. Until then, we are comforted that you have given us your Holy Spirit and it is with that hope and that joy for that future uh, reunion with you in, in heaven um, when you return that we go out from this place. In your name we pray, amen. I like the hymn that was chosen. <laughs> Let's stand and sing, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, hymn 521. <laughs>